Midlands Today on Midlands 183 with O'Brien's Mullingar. It's official Westmeath. No county loves Renault more. P.O.Brien.ie Midlands Today with Aidan Barry on Midlands 183. And a very good morning to you. Welcome along. It is Aidan Barry here. It's in for Will Faulkner this morning. I'm in today and tomorrow on Midlands Today. Today is the 19th of May 2022 and it's good to be with you again. It's a lovely morning out there. A nice bit of relief from the rain yesterday. Uh, beautiful blue skies again around, certainly around Tullamore. Hope it's the same wherever you're listening to us in the Midlands. Now, what have we got coming up on the programme today? We'll be talking about the uh, two Green Party members who've lost their party whip after defying the coalition in the National Maternity Hospital vote. Uh, This was the Sinn Féin motion last night. And two Green Party TDs, Nessa Hurrigan and Patrick Coslow, they lost their party whip after voting for the Sinn Féin uh, motion. Um, what else? We will be speaking to a Port Leash man. Uh, he's walking from his home all the way to Santiago de Compostela, which, of course, is the end of the Camino in Spain, but all the way from Port Leash right through Wales, through France, and all the way across northern Spain. We'll be chatting to him as he makes his way along. He's about a thousand kilometres into his journey. We'll be catching up with him this morning as well on the programme. And 60 years ago today, this happened. Happy. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, Mr. President. Yes, happy birthday, Mr. President, indeed. That, of course, is the sound of Marilyn Monroe. She was singing happy birthday to JFK. On this day, exactly, it was the uh, 19th of May, back in 1962, 60 years ago to the very day. Uh, we won't be, let's say, focusing so much on Marilyn Monroe. We'll be talking more about the dress that she was wearing. We'll be saying yes to the dress at about 20 past 11 this morning and finding a little bit more about, particularly about how Kim Kardashian ended up wearing that same dress at the Met Gala a little bit earlier this year as well. So all that to come on the programme. If you have any reaction, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can text or WhatsApp us now. Here is the details. 083-3010-103. The Midlands 103 text and WhatsApp line. Powered by Lamb Brothers Arden Road, Tullamore. Home of Toyota. The top-selling car brand in Offaly. Now, I say the main news this morning is, of course, the uh, Green Party and the fact that a Green pair lose the whip after defying the coalition in the National Maternity Hospital vote. This was uh, last night. The government's strength has now been cut to the bare majority of 80 after Coslow, that's Nessa, uh, sorry, Patrick Coslow and Hurrigan, uh, Nessa Hurrigan, uh, decided to vote with the Sinn Féin motion last night in the Dáil. The Fine Gael Parliamentary Party hears strong support for hospital relief location last night but I say um, that was the uh, result of the vote and the result on the Green Party we'd be getting reaction from the Green Party and from uh, also from uh, Fianna Fáil as well just after 10 o'clock this morning so stay tuned for that Liz Truss is in the news this morning as well she's the British Foreign Secretary uh, she has promised to publish a legal statement backing up her claim that unilaterally scrapping parts of the Northern Ireland Protocol will not breach international law 
She was speaking amid ongoing tension between the British and Irish government on the issue, with Tánaiste Leo Varadkar saying yesterday that Brexit was like political climate change and would go on forever. And it's certainly a really bad feeling, you would have to say. Some of the, the worst kind of uh, tensions, I suppose, there around the Northern Ireland situation between the British and Irish governments for many a year. And we definitely need to keep an eye on developments there. And of course, the EU watching in as well to see if they need to take action on Britain as well. Uh, the front of the Irish Independence Day are going with the story. It's revealed the hidden cost of remote working to the taxpayers. The state faces income deficits of over 200 million euro. Taxpayers, uh, taxpayers face a hidden cost of more than 200 million as thousands of people continue to work from home despite the end of COVID restrictions. Earlier this week, the government uh, promoted extensive research that shows workers could save more than 1,400 a year by working from home. However, the document also reveals 207 million euro hidden costs to the exchequer. And these include, for example, um, the taxpayer could see a loss of 110 million in fuel duty as VAT receipts uh, due to reduced commuting. And the go- local government faces a further loss of 80 million in commercial rates per year as fewer people work in city centres. That's just a couple of examples of it. It's all laid out for you there in the front of Irish Independent if you want to read all about it. Now, um, the front of the Irish Times this morning are uh, talking about uh, a supposed game changer antiviral pill, which has been available for over a month, but only 65 doses of it have been used in Ireland. 65 doses of an antiviral pill that prevents people becoming seriously ill with COVID-19 have been given to Irish patients. Paxlovid which uh, previously hailed by Minister for Health Stephen Donnelly as a game changer in fighting the virus, has been available for over a month. But in that time, only 13 doses have been given in hospitals and 52 in the community. Whereas you contrast that with the United States, where it's been available since the start of the year to people over the age of 12 who are at risk, 670,000 doses have been prescribed. And this Paxlovid is uh, also a product belonging to the Pfizer range. Uh, the Irish Independent today, you would have heard it on the news there as well, in the sports news, the Gardaí investigation into alleged max, uh, match fixing at League of Ireland matches involves a suspected number of games that date back to t- 2016. The Irish Ar- Independent can reveal 10 men aged between 20 and 60 were questioned at stations in three different counties yesterday in relation to the massive investigation by the Garda National Economic Crime Bureau. Uh, That's been ongoing, that investigation, since 2019. So you can imagine the amount of trawling they have been going through, uh, particular documents and different texts and so on. The investigation is focusing on games involving just one club and many of the arrested men had connections to this football club. Seven of the men arrested in a series of dawn range yesterday morning uh, in connection with the ongoing investigation um, are footballers or former footballers. So uh, we'll keep an eye on that as well. Um, That's the Irish Independent reporting on the max match fixing. Now, welfare recipients are to be allowed to earn 14000 a year renting out a room. Social welfare recipients can rent a room in their house up to a value of €14,000 a year without affecting their payments under a new government measure aimed at easing the accommodation crisis. Minister for Social Protection Heather Humphreys is to bring forward new measures to free up accommodation, both for the domestic housing crisis but also 
to help with existing pressures in finding accommodation for Ukrainian refugees. Under the plans, a new disregard will be introduced to a limit of €14,000 for those who rent a room in their own home. This uh, policy is similar to Revenue's existing rent-a-room scheme, which has been in operation for a number of years, but the new rules will apply to those who are in receipt of means-tested social welfare payments. That's the big change. We'll be hearing a little bit more about that on the programme today as well. Now, um, this ongoing uh, concern in relation to uh, hepatitis as well is still a worry as well. Uh, The mystery form of severe hepatitis diagnosed in children may be some kind of reaction to the common adenoid um, adenovirus. That's like uh, that virus is like common cold. It has flu-like symptoms, not dissimilar to uh, coronavirus in terms of headaches and uh, flu-like symptoms. Uh, anyway, Dr. Cullum Henry was talking yesterday about it. He has confirmed that another seven possible cases were being investigated, and this was in addition to the previous six that have been reported already. Uh, the HSE revealed last week that one of the six children who were initially uh, contacted this uh, mystery illness, that one of those six had died. This child had de- uh, developed severe hepatitis, uh, including inflammation of the liver. Another child uh, had to be taken to the UK for a liver transplant. So um, seven more on top of the six being diagnosed so far. And I say it's been connected to this uh, virus, kind of flu-like virus. It seems to affect very young children, babies up to about the age of um, young children, up as far as the age of 10. But uh, we'll see how that story develops as well. And it's interesting as well to get two different perspectives on the one story. You would have heard um, Peter talking about the, the final episode of Derry Girls. The season three ended on Tuesday night with a kind of fairly dramatic end. I won't spoil it if you haven't seen it. But last night they did a one hour special just to wrap the whole thing up where everything moved forward to the time of the Good Friday Agreement, which was mid-1990s. But it's interesting to see two different reviews of it in the papers today. A positive one from the Irish Independent. Uh, this is Pat Stacy writing on page six of the Independent today. Back for just one night and brimming with gems, the Derry Girls came of age in a cracker of a show. So he talks about it in wonderful tones. But then you turn to the Irish Times and you've got Ed Power. Derry Girls is comedy gold, but its last episode was no grand finale. So it just goes to prove you can't please all the people all the time. But uh, I watched it last night. I enjoyed it, I have to say. It was a little bit sugary, a little bit of saccharine sweet, but there you go. It's nice to tidy up these things. A very clever finish to it uh, with a modern day twist again, which I won't spoil for you if you haven't seen it. And uh, if you want to access it, by the way, as well, it's free of charge just to download the app all four onto your phone or onto your tablet or even onto your smart TV and you can watch all the episodes of Derry Girls they're a huge success uh, huge Irish success as well Tommy Tiernan superb in it and uh, the uh, four ladies and uh, the young guy really really good in it as well it's a great series and great fun uh, final note from the papers this morning this uh, you again you would have heard Ellen talk about this in the sports news uh, we're all eyes on Southern Hills in Tulsa Oklahoma because uh, that's where the second golf major of the year has taken place and uh, we have four Irish people uh, involved uh, Rory McIlroy is there and uh, Seamus Power uh, Potty Harrington and of course our own Shane Lowry Shane Lowry tees off this evening at three minutes past seven and uh, so he'll be playing right up till about midnight so if you've got this at, at home on your TV you have nice evenings viewing uh, for Shane Lowry he's off today and he's in good form he's a uh, 
He's had three. He's just had a three-week break uh, that has refreshed him, and on the evidence of his results prior to that break, which included back-to-back individual third places in the U.S. Masters and the RBC Heritage last month, it's all set up now for Laurie to have a good uh, Masters or a good uh, major, I should say, the second major of the year. It's the U.S. PGA, and it's taken place, say, in Oklahoma at Southern Hills. You'll be hearing all about that over the next four days as it progresses to a finish on Sunday. So wish him well. Um, the Irish Times are saying one of the guys to watch is Seamus Power, that, uh, that he reckons this course will suit him and that he's putting at the moment is on fire. So we'll watch him too as well. He's having a great year so far. So uh, all eyes on the golf uh, from tonight on. It starts to say, I think it starts around one o'clock today. Rory McIlroy is out just after two. He's in quite a big group. Uh, Tiger Woods, I think, is with him as well. Uh, Rory McIlroy, and there was another name there and it's gone out of my head. But anyway, it'll be a big one. And they're going out just after two o'clock today so all the action starting from the middle of the day now still to come before 10 o'clock uh, this morning we're going to be talking to a Port Leash man who's walking from Port Leash all the way to Cam- uh, to Santiago de Campostello the final uh, stage of the Camino walk uh, but he's walking it all the way from Port Leash to there and it's a kind of a three to four month uh, project we'll be catching up with him en route to see how he's getting on he's been sending back different reviews and stuff via social media and via YouTube channel but we'll be hoping to talk to him this morning and find out how he's getting on uh, as well as that we'll also be talking about gambling teenage gambling and uh, hopefully new legislation that's going to try and curb this a little bit uh, we'll be talking about that before 10 o'clock this morning as well if you want to contact the programme, it's 083 30 10 103. We'd love to hear from you. 083 30 10 103. That works on text or WhatsApp. Now, welcome back to the uh, programme. We're going to chat now to Eamon Cullerton uh, from Port Leash, uh, but he's on quite a walk at the moment. Uh, he's heading from Port Leash all the way to Santiago de Campostello, the final mark of the Camino. Um, we'll say good morning to you. Good morning, Eamon. Morning, Aidan. How are you doing? Uh, it's good to talk to you. Could you tell us, Eamon, first of all, where about are you located at the moment? Because I know you're about, uh, you started off in April, so you're about a month and a half into this walk. I'm between uh, Gwen Mue and Blaine. It's Blan, I think the race of Reg pronounces it. It's B-L-A-I-N. It's, uh, it's about two days away from Nantes, which is the major city there on Whitney. In the north, north of France, yeah. Yeah, well, Nantes is the is that is a big city there? N A N T E S Nantes is the way they pronounce it. Okay, and so and that would be about a third of the way down the coast of uh, of France, West France, isn't that right? Exactly, that's the way I'm looking at it. Is uh, uh, Nantes, then Bordeaux, be the next major one, and then Spain, the border. Then Spain. the border of Spain. Okay, and uh, so first of all, let's uh, uh, tell us why are you doing this walk game, and it's in memory of your sister, isn't it? It is there yeah, for and the funds that are raised for cancer research. There's a, a just giving page there. Um, yeah, please. On, I'm on that. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. My sister died during the pandemic, and I just thought uh, what most people thought. And during the pandemic, it was it was it's not what we're used to. Money, um, family, and then it was over. Like you know. Right. So I sort of wanted to do something. To, you know, just to, to remember her she, and to mark her life, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And her name um, was Alice, is it? Alice, yeah, McCann was her married name. All right, so, and was she from? Uh, uh, was she living in Portleash area? Was she from around there? I know originally there. She was out. They lived in just outside Mount Melick there, the Bonus. It would have been across, just across the Offaly border. All right. Um, so, 
And uh, how how have you been able to arrange this walk from work, uh, Eamon? Uh, because you work uh, uh, in Shannon, is it? I am, yeah. Well, I can walk from home most of the time. I work for a company called AirTech. Um, they're aviation services. I'm a tech services engineer, but I'm a contractor. So I told them, and they they, they when give me work when I get back. It's how it is a contract work, you know. Okay. So I've been, been lucky that I've been able. I've been saving for for the last since I came up with the idea. I've been saving for it and planning it for about over a year there. And what kind of planning goes into a trip like that, Eamon? I mean, first of all, the uh, the path that you've chosen. I looked at some of the videos. You left a very wet uh, port leash there on uh, the 4th of April, Monday the 4th of April, and headed towards Dublin and then across to Wales. Why did you choose that route? Well, two reasons. One, um, Wales is beautiful. Yeah, it <laughs> and, is a beautiful country. I, yeah. I, I, yeah, and I've never got a chance to hike it in. Um, number two is... Uh, the, the, I wanted to increase the length of the, the Camino because uh, the longer it goes on, the more money I could raise. So, um, you know, publicity for someone like me, is, is it's it's uh, hard to get publicity and it takes a long time for it to grow. The, the idea was that to grow it on social media and to keep posting and to make YouTube videos and hopefully that it, 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 it starts to expand by itself, you know. Okay, so you took about three or four days to make your way from Port Leash to Dublin. Then you took the ferry over to Wales, and then you came down the west coast of Wales, um, and you did the uh, the is it the Cumbrian or Cambrian way there near um, Snowdon, isn't it? Down around there, was it that the way route you took? That's it. Um, not comp- uh, mostly the Cambrian way. Mostly the Cambrian, way. not not always. Some t- the, actually, some of the Welsh people had. And I met them on the way to, they pointed me in different directions and I followed their advice. There was some beautiful lakes and stuff to see. The Cambrian Main is, is strictly the ridge line of the mountains south. But uh, there was other things to see too, but mostly I'd say 80% was the Cambrian Way. And, uh, was it an easy, was that yeah. a tough walk? I presume it's fairly mountainous. It's, it's that was the toughest by a uh, long shot. Uh, there was some some big climbs. But right. they were worth every bit. When you get to the top, they were worth every bit. But um, England and Devon, I think, was... There's a, that walk is the two-mose way. That's uh, Exmoor X- and uh, Dartmoor, is it? Yeah. Correct, yes. But that was uh, ten times harder than I thought it was going to be. That caught me off guard. Uh, it's not as... The, the, it's hilly, and it's not as high as Aten Lake Wales, but the, the, how steep they were. It'd get you off guard there. You, you wouldn't be making progress like I thought it would. And then you took um, the ferry from, I say, down at the southern part of England, around Plymouth. You took the ferry across to Brittany. Correct, yeah, to Roscoff, uh, Plymouth to Roscoff. And I landed in, uh, I don't know, the si- oh yeah, the sixth, the morning of the 6th of May. And, uh, 6th of May. Then I walked to Morley, yeah, to Morley from there. Okay, okay. So how are the legs bearing up, Eamon? I'm sure a lot of people are concerned about blisters and things like that. Do you suffer from that? Have you had to take breaks, rest days? How have you managed it? I've took, I've, I've no rest days since I got to France. I, I rest in Nantes. Um, but I did in Swansea, but it was more, I was, I would, one rest day or two days, rest days would be as much as I would want to take. But um, I had a couple of friends join me for um, some of the Devon walk, so I had to wait on them because I got in probably two days before I thought I was going to. So right. I ended up 
um, being three rest days there and then a day travelling to the other side. I was hoping to get a ferry from Swansea to the other side, or not a ferry, a, a boat or something small, like a pleasure craft or something, but there was nothing happening. So I ended up having to get trains back around Bristol and buses to get to the other side. And have have you any other plans for other people to join you on the walk? I know it's a mainly, mainly a solitary affair. You say you've had people join you for the Dartmoor part, but uh, what about, let's say, France or Spain? Do you have any people to join you then? Um, people have been talking about it. <laughs> at the end, def- definitely at the end, I think there's a, a few people that show up for the last few days, but um, my cousin is meeting me in North, but she's only down for the day because they're very busy at work so she can't uh, get any more than a day off Right. but it'll be great, great to see her and she's yeah. got some new shoes speaking <laughs> of blisters oh wow and uh, yeah and a filter for my camera because I forgot, forgot that okay so, and, uh, and how long would you, how long is the longest walk you've done in a day Eamon and what kind of mileage are you covering or kilometres are you covering well 45k was the was the longest day wow um, that is a long walk I, yeah it is yeah, it was. Uh, I was coming down out of the mountains in Wales, and I wasn't really sure. Um, I was coming down by the lakes, um, and I wasn't really sure. I didn't get as far as I wanted the day before. I was supposed to get to a buffy, and I wasn't really sure how far I was away from it. So I, I was walking for about 10 kilometres down out of the mountains, and I eventually got to Tarmac Road to bring me down by the lakes, and then I saw the sign for where I was going was still 20 miles away. <laughs> right, good lord. So, good lord. so I was, I was, uh, I, I had not to do only been a bear and just, just knock it out. But um, twenty five would be a nice day like today. Um, it'd be handy enough. But right. then usually it'd be thirty, thirty four, is where you'd like to be when you're making, making, you're making good headway once you get into the low thirties or. Um, I, but anywhere it could be anywhere. It depends on the accommodation. You see, the 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 accommodation is is um, people who accept pilgrims. Like uh, it's done through the, the society, and uh, so where they are, you're sort of staying. So like today is 25, but yesterday was 31 or two or something like that. Right, know? right, right, indeed. So, so if people want to support you, Eamon, in this, um, and they want to contribute money to it towards the cancer research. Uh, how th- how can they do it? What's your website or what's the donation uh, platform? How do you do it? Well, just given is the platform. Um, it's what most of the charities prefer. Um, it's a hundred percent of what goes into that goes to them. Well, uh, whatever I don't know what the website takes, but but uh, it's only between the two of them anyway. Um, but uh, it's not like you know a GoFundMe or that where uh, the fundraiser has access to it. I have no access to the funds. So there's two ways of doing it. One is you can Google, or not Google, um, you go to the Just Giving website and use the search engine and um, put my name in. It will bring you to it. Or two, um, I have uh, on Facebook, um, I just have my page is called Irish Pilgrim. And in the bio, there's a link to everything else uh, to be links to because I post on Instagram and every. Uh, all the social media platforms. Okay, okay. Um, well, we'll mention we'll, we'll mention those again for you, Eamon. Um, so it's just giving uh, is the uh, donation, or uh, Irish Pilgrim is your Facebook page uh, with all the links there as well. Yeah, and YouTube is just that Pilgrim 
and there's others, other channels on YouTube but if, the, if they're looking for it just scroll, keep scrolling down until you see uh, a video with, all my videos start with day 1 day 10 day 14 whatever I was looking at some of them last night alright I watched a few of them I think you're up to about day 40 something at this stage is that right? Yeah so I stayed in a farm last night and I couldn't upload because I, I was out of internet and it was a beautiful farm the family were uh, absolutely lovely family um, but the uh, internet sometimes listened to me didn't go, so there was no upload last night and I'm staying in the farm tonight so but by the weekend, I'll get them all back up to date again. But it does happen. But in the, if you're on, if they do find my page or, or on YouTube, in the, the the description of all the videos is all the links as well to just giving and everywhere else too. All right. So, well, I, I try to I try to try to do the best I can. But when you're uploading on the move, you know yourself. It's uh, it's I have I have a phone and a camera and a, and a drone with me, so. It's, it's, there's nothing else there's no other editing software Perfect. on even showing you know alright Eamon it's yeah. good to talk to you and listen uh, it's a lovely tribute to your sister lovely at market and I say hopefully you'll raise many funds as well for her thanks for talking to us today and the best of luck in the rest of your trip thanks very much Eamon Okay, that's Eamon Cullerton, C-U-L-L-I-T-O-N. He's from Port Leash. He says he's walking a member of his sister, Alice McCann, who died of cancer during the pandemic. He's walking from Port Leash all the way to Santiago de Campostela. You heard him there. He's not too far away from Nantes uh, in northern, kind of northwestern France there, heading down along the west coast, heading to the Spanish border and then across the northern part of Spain from there through I suppose um, Bilbao and all the way across to the northwest part of Spain to Santiago along the Camino at that stage so uh, if you want to support him just giving just giving is one of the websites and the other option is to log on to Irish Pilgrim uh, or look up Facebook with Eamon Cullerton and you can also see some of his videos I I watched a few of them last night on YouTube as well and it's very interesting to see uh, he does a little intro a little talk at the start of each video uh, to describe where he is and how things have gone over the last year or so and then he uploads loads of scenic uh, pictures. You heard him there. He's got a camera, he's got a drone, he's got his phone. So he's recording along the way as well and just trying to raise as much um, money for cancer research. So maybe you can help him out today. Now, welcome back to the programme. Uh, we were talking about gambling. Problem gal- gambling is twice as common in 15 and 16-year-olds as it is in adults, according to a gambling charity. Around 3,500 teenagers of that age are engaged in problem gal- gambling in Ireland. We're going to talk now to uh, Barry Grant. He's CEO of Extern Problem Galving. Uh, he's going to talk about us this morning. Good morning, Barry. Morning, Aidan. Thanks for having me on. No problem. Could you tell us, first of all, um, in terms of the gambling, uh, when we talk about gambling, what exactly are these uh, teenagers and these 15 to 16-year-olds, what are they gambling on? What are they betting on? Uh, predominantly, it's sports betting and it's online in that age group, as you can imagine. They're very much into the digital world and I suppose one of the problems we have around the, the kind of unregulated market in Ireland is that the the online gambling operators uh, generally across the board have a rule where a person can create an account uh, they can lodge funds to the account and they don't have to verify their age or even their identity for 72 hours and we would have on a fairly regular basis parents contacting us to say that they're teenage Usually the son, occasionally daughter, has gotten the the parents' bank card and created an account and lost a substantial amount of money in that 72-hour window. Uh, But online sports is the big one that we would see. 
And uh, how do you think are maybe younger teenagers, maybe uh, groomed is the wrong word for it, but prepared for uh, gambling in terms of, is it just purely advertising or uh, do they come across gambling in other formats? I've read a little bit about maybe how gaming and playing games can kind of set people up into a kind of a feeling of uh, uh, getting kind of, uh, you know, these rewards as they play different uh, games, that that can get them into a kind of a gambling mood as well. Yeah, well, certainly there are a lot of gambling mechanics in in recent years in some of the the most popular games. So FIFA is is the, one of the ones that uh, would people most would be most familiar with. And within FIFA, they brought in a thing called loot boxes, and these types of uh, gambling mechanics are in a lot of other games as well. But with the loot boxes, you can pay a certain amount of cash money, and then you don't know who, what player is going to be in the loot box, and obviously you're hoping for a Lionel Messi or a Cristiano Ronaldo or whoever is considered right. to be the best one. Yeah. Uh, but you're much, much, much more likely to get a another player, uh, much lower down the pecking order. And it's that it's like the spin of a of a roulette wheel or the spin of a, a one arm bandit. That you know you, you you pay your money, you take your risk, and hope you're hoping to get some sort of a reward. Uh, now, obviously, you can't cash out money out of these games, so that's where it's slightly different. But otherwise, all the mechanics, what's going on psychologically, what's going on emotionally in the mind of a young person is exactly the same. And even within games like FIFA, you know, half of the Premier League teams have gambling shirt sponsors, and of course, those gambling logos are on the shirts in the FIFA game as well, never mind the, the real-life games that a lot of you know, children and young people are watching. So... There's this huge normalization of gambling. I mean, it's an over 18s product. It's addictive to some people in the same way that, say, alcohol is addictive to some people and it's an over 18s product. But there are no restrictions on the advertising or promotion of us, you know, whereas we've accepted that we need to have some restrictions about around things like alcohol and tobacco. Uh, it's because we don't want children to be exposed to them or to see them as normal or to be encouraged to do them, especially before the age of 18. And... In terms of advertising, I mean, anybody who has got sports channels or so on will see the amount of uh, betting advertising that goes on during the breaks or before matches, or anybody waiting, let's say, for Cheltenham to come up, even on our own terrestrial TV, um, would have seen all the ads in the lead-up to Cheltenham for betting. Um, uh, What kind of restrictions are needed and what kind of laws are needed to protect people from this advertising? Well, we would ideally like to see a pre-watershed ban, as was proposed by the Justice Committee during the week. So that would mean no gambling advertising before 9 o'clock uh, across the board, be it broadcast or uh, or social media. And now I think on social media, you know, people have kind of raised concerns. Well, how do you do that? I think it's not beyond the wit of the tech companies to set a timer on these things. Do you know what I mean? I don't think that's necessarily rocket science. I think that's doable and that's probably the big one i mean i have two teenage daughters they've zero interest in sports and they've zero interest in gambling but many of the ads that they see when they're watching the things that they're interested in on youtube are gambling ads right Right. so you know we're at saturation point i'm sure many of the listeners can empathize with this and especially if you're you're young and you're male and you have a passing interest or any sort of an interest in sport online advertising especially social media advertising is the most effective for the gambling industry and other industries because they can target 
their advertising so they get much more bang for their buck rather than just kind of broadcasting it to the entire population where many people have no interest in gambling at all. So I think we could have the most impact if um, the gambling companies and the social media companies could get on board. I don't think it's going to be that difficult to find a workable solution to do that so that children aren't exposed to it before the hours of, say, 9 p.m. How uh, does Ireland fare in comparison to other European countries? I was reading recently that Belgium are bringing in fairly you know, tough laws at a fairly rapid rate and that Ireland doesn't compare favourably. How do we compare favourably to our other European neighbours on the whole area of curbs around gambling and protecting teenagers? It's a mixed bag. Uh, I mean, Italy a couple of years ago banned all advertising across the board completely. I think there's no exceptions. Spain, I think... Uh, for I think you'll only see a gambling ad in Spain if you're up watching the telly at three o'clock in the morning. Right. Like it's very, very restrictive. Uh, we're much more like the UK, I suppose, culturally, uh, both in terms of gambling and advertising. Uh, but even in the UK, they're currently reviewing their gambling legislation and it's expected that there will be kind of stricter curbs there, which could benefit us because one of the issues that we keep on coming up against with this is that you know, if people are watching the English Premier League in Ireland, while you're watching the UK channel and the Irish government obviously can't do, do anything about that. Uh, so we might see kind of greater harmonisation between what's happening in the UK in terms of gambling advertising and what's uh, going to happen here. Uh, but in Belgium, yeah, it's been quite strict. And actually the Belgian gambling regulator has uh, control over those loot boxes that we were talking about earlier. So mm. that comes under the remit of the gambling regulator. And we'd love to see the new Irish gambling regulator have control over those uh, gambling products in children's games. What what resources are there for parents who may feel you know that maybe want to protect their children from falling into this first maybe preventative measures, and then for people who are concerned that they are being drawn into it or maybe at crisis point? What resources are there, Barry? Um, well, we have a schools program, and my colleague Tony O'Reilly has been delivering talks in schools all across the country, including in. Uh, the CHO region, the Mead, West Mead, Leash Offaly, Longford. I would have covered a lot of schools this academic year. Uh, obviously, we'd love to be in a position to be able to do more, but this is the first year. Really, we're doing that as a pilot with HSE funding. So we're proactively getting out into as many schools as we can, trying to do that harm prevention piece. We're not anti-gambling. We're not telling the young people don't ever gamble or don't gamble. Mm. When you grow up, we're just saying, look, these are the risks this is uh, what an addictive behaviour might look like if you're kind of getting into trouble and this, these are some of the things that you can put in place to avoid that from, from happening. Uh, in a kind of reactive way, if somebody is concerned uh, about their own gambling or the, uh, their child's gambling or a family member's gambling, they can call us or text us on our helpline. It's 089-241-5401. Or for information on all available uh, support services, uh, they can just go to our website, and it's problemgambling.ie. Problemgambling.ie. Uh, yeah. Okay, that's brilliant. Barry, thank you for your time this morning. I appreciate you talking to us. Thanks a million, Aidan. appreciate no you having me on. Okay. Thank you. That's Barry Grant. He's manager of the Extern Problem Gambling Project. And to say more information at problemgambling.ie.
All right, we're heading towards news and uh, weather and obituaries at 10 o'clock. Uh, coming up after 10, we'll be talking a little bit more, uh, getting Green Party and Fianna Fáil reaction to uh, the uh, two Green Party members who lost the whip last night following the controversial uh, vote uh, proposed by Sinn Féin on the National Maternity Hospital. More of that to come after 10. Now, welcome back to the programme. Well, last night, two Green Party TDs who defied the coalition and voted in favour of an opposition motion on maternity hospital will have their party whip uh, removed. We're going to talk now on the phone to Pippa Hackett, and of course, uh, Minister for State at the Department of Agriculture, Food and Marine. Good morning, Minister. Good morning, Aidan. Um, first of all, can I have your reaction to yesterday's events, please? Um, look, I suppose, uh, firstly, it's, it's important to say, I suppose, our parliamentary party, you know, firstly regrets having to take these steps. Um, the sanctions are quite severe, um, but they were needed um, in this ex- in this incident. And it's really, I suppose, important that the government and its representative um, parliamentary party members, you know, stay united on votes. That's really where our power lies. So that that's just so important. Was it a difficult meeting last night? Um, not particularly so. I mean, I think it, there was no, no no surprises. I mean, I think both deputies had had indicated, you know, publicly and and privately that they were they were go, going to support the, the Sinn Féin PMB. So I don't think anyone was particularly surprised that that it happened. Um, and look, I think the sanctions as, as, as delivered, as you say, six months um, loss of the whip and suspension from the party, um, I think are appropriate. Is there concern in the party about the two members because it's not the first time they've kind of indicated that they would part ways with the the, uh, the uh, Green Party in relation to, I think a few years ago it was in relation to Canada and a trade agreement that they had indicated they might not support that. Um, is there concern in the party about their commitment to the party line and to stay you know, within party rules? Um, look, it's not ideal. I, I have to be honest about that. But um, I mean, both 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 Deputy um, um, Costello and, and Harrigan were involved in, in program for government negotiations. You know, we have a really strong program for government with um, good, strong green um, aspects to deliver on it. So you know, they they are supportive of of what we're doing in government on the whole. So I think you know, I think they will continue to be supportive of that. And what were your own feelings on the vote in relation to the National Maternity Hospital? Do you have concerns the fact that the land is leased rather than bought outright? And that's what the motion was really about. The, you know, the, the slight concern there that there might still be a religious influence in this new National Maternity Hospital. Um, no, no, I don't have concerns. I think, um, I mean, the government cabinet made a decision two weeks ago to sort of pause the, the final decision on it for two weeks. I think that was really useful for, for many people who, who did have concerns. Um, obviously, not everyone, you know, I think there's a small minority now who are not content with where we're at, but I think the vast majority of the public are on board. They need that, we, they understand the importance of, of getting this National Maternity Hospital built as soon as possible. I mean, the vast majority of clinicians, midwives, um, you know the masters of the, the previous masters and the current master of the, um, um, the National Maternity Hospital are in favour of it. So I think that two week piece was was really useful for people to to bring clarity and um, and and I think that was really really uh, worthwhile. So I, I have no concerns. That two weeks was needed because I think Catherine Martin of your own party had uh, had concerns as well at the time. Yeah, absolutely, and um, I think clarity has been has been provided um, across the board from from I mean the ownership piece 
And look, it is it is Green Party policy that we would like, you know, our public hospitals to be built on, on public lands. But look, the land, unfortunately, isn't available to buy in this situation. The hospital does need to be co-located um, um, with other hospitals. And I think, you know, a 300-year lease um, is, 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 is as good as ownership. Um, and, you know, the assurances are there that it's going to be a, a wholly secular-run uh, hospital. Uh, so tell me, as a result of this now, with the loss of the two uh, members, um, it now cuts the uh, power of the coalition right down to the bare minimum. Uh, is there a concern in your own party and in the coalition that this is going to weaken uh, particularly some of the uh, difficult things that have come up? I mean, you've seen, the, let's say, some of the controversy recently around turf and so on and that. And there are many more decisions to be made, particularly around, you know, uh, keeping curbs on our carbon emissions and so on over the coming months. So uh, with more difficult session decisions coming down the line, uh, doesn't this put uh, the government in even a more difficult uh, situation? Um, look, I think it is fair to say it does make things more difficult, but I don't think those difficulties are, are insurmountable. Um, you know, we, we really need to get down to focusing now on delivering, um, you know, the, the programme for government commitments that have been made by all three parties. I mean, to be, all, to be honest, all the three parties work, have been working really well together in coalition. You know, we all come from different perspectives, but, you know, we, we made the agreements to work together. And, you know, I think on the whole, we are working well together and there's plenty. We've done plenty in the last couple of years and there, there's plenty more to, to do. And I think that's where the focus needs to go now. Is there a feeling in the Green Party that you do need to step up when you read, let's say, some of the newspapers today and last week in relation to climate change, that it's not really something that we can push out now, any of these changes that need to be made to 20, you know, the year 2026 or 27, you know, and it did look like that we were backloading some of these arrangements uh, to the, you know, the, the latter five years rather than the first five years. But yet some of the headlines from the newspapers in the last week or so are showing that action needs to be taken uh, right away on these are the government proceeding too slowly on some of these matters um, I don't think so. I mean, a lot of a lot of the, the the system change we need to implement isn't something you can just do in a couple of months or a couple of years. You know, so that's what we're working towards, and that's why um, I suppose the balance of the carbon budgets is um, you know backloaded, as you say, if you like, into the second half of this uh, of this decade. And I think that's why the action now is to get things in place. Now it's to get um, you know public transport up and running, active travel networks. It's to address um, issues in agriculture. Um, you know, lowering our use of fertilisers, etc. Um, it's to deal with all of those issues and up, ramp up our renewable um, p- potential as well. And that's what we need to spend the next number of years really, really addressing. And, you know, the dividends will come and hopefully it will be easier then in the second half of this decade and, and right up to um, 2050, you know, when we're heading for a sort of net zero figure. But isn't it still a little bit of a worry that something like turf and the um, recent National Maternity Hospital could take up so much time and such difficult votes for the government when much more difficult decisions need to be made down the line? Uh, are you not concerned that uh, that you need, I suppose, first of all, all your party on board um, with you in a united front and also then the government, the ability to take these very difficult decisions over the next couple of years? Um, yes, but I mean, this is what this is what governments have to do, and good governments have to make these difficult decisions. Um, I think the National Maternity Hospital issue was a particularly emotive one. Um, look, I'm not saying other issues aren't as emotive, but I think um, I think there's a practicality to to other aspects. And look, if we get this right in terms of 
addressing our, our climate and, and biodiversity. You know, it, it, it will ultimately improve. And, you know, in a way, that's what it's all about, um, you know, addressing quality people, improving um, all of this, addressing the, the sort of legally binding targets we're, we're tied into. So um, that's why that cohesion is so important. That's why governments have to be engaged in, in collective responsibility. And look, that's what we're doing. OK, thank you for your time this morning, uh, Minister. I appreciate you taking the time to speak to us. Thank you. Bye-bye now. OK, that's Pippa Hackett from the Green Party in her reaction to last night's uh, exclusion of two uh, party members from uh, the Green Party. Um, she is uh, a minister at the Department of uh, Agriculture, Food, um, Minister for State, I should say, Department of Agriculture, Food and Marine. Now, uh, Leash Offaly uh, TD, Barry Cowan, believes that there has to be sanctions when a TD votes against its party. He's been speaking with Midlands 103's Ellen Butler and says it's nine years since the project was first mooted and it needs to be acted upon. Well, the government parties in the main voters abstained on the motion, mainly because a decision had already been taken by government uh, following a, a many weeks of protracted debate and clarification of relation to issues that had been raised in relation to the provisions by government to act on government policy and indeed the policy of four previous ministers in providing uh, a new national maternity hospital. There had been a hope and an aspiration on the part of all parties that it would be built on public land. Uh, that wasn't possible because, first of all, there had to be a co-location in order to ensure there was adequate other medical services available on site. That's why it was co-located with St. Vincent's. Uh, secondly, uh, the owners of the land were not prepared to sell it they were adamant that it would continue as a maternity hospital. Uh, they provided a lease of 300 years uh, where the medical and legal opinions have assured all and sundry that it is effective ownership. It will serve 10 generations. Uh, there are provisions within it to ensure that all legally permissible treatments applicable under law will be provided by the state, irrespective of uh, irrespective of, 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 of um, religious ethos that may exist on the part of those who own the land. Um, so I was assured by that. Most government party members were assured by that. Uh, two Wertons uh, and Sinn Féin concocted a means and a ways in which to entrap them. Yes, yeah, so ultimately this, this motion yeah, they basically... Put a motion. They was stood a... up and opposed their own motion and then voted with the motion. So, you know, it was a non-binding motion. It's a political gamesmanship. You know, maybe we do the same where we in their boat. But, but it's, an, it's an exercise made. in principle, really, because as you yeah, say yourself, the approval isn't going to did change. Did not vote with the government. Yeah, so an exercise in principle that's had now kind of fairly significant ramifications on the stability of the government. Yeah, look, it's unfortunate at any time when any member of a government party does not support it in the chamber, in the Dáil, uh, when that does happen, there has to be sanction. It's a means of avoiding, um, you know, it happening in the future. Uh, it's imperative that each party uh, supports government policy and legislation, which are provided for in its ability to deliver a program for government, uh, as the three parties agreed. Uh, we mightn't always agree uh, on every aspect of different ways in which government policy is implemented in certain issues. But that's why you negotiate a programme for government where there are wins and losers for all parties, but compromise reached by all in order to ensure that you can have a government for a five-year period. Uh, can you appreciate why they did it, though, Barry, considering that... Well, it brings stability and certainty and, and ensures you don't have uh, elections every six or seven weeks, which would uh, 
you know, starve of his international investment and, and leave our economy on, on, on the peril of, of, of disaster on a regular basis. To be fair, it is quite a significant issue, the National Maternity Hospital, and, it, and the, the Green Party itself actually stands, this is what they, they stand for, that it be built on, on public land. And even the, the party chairperson, Pauline O'Reilly, admitted today while commenting on, uh, reflecting your comments that it's necessary to sanction you know, TDs and senators who break rank, um, but she admitted that the Green Party stands for the, the maternity hospital being built on public land, but they weren't willing to see it through in the way that, yeah, that Nassim Morgan and Patrick Costa yeah, were you, willing to stand by what they were elected you for. Have to measure, you have to measure your aspirations and your wishes against the practicalities of the situation that presents itself. I mean, it's nine years since this was first muted. Uh, planning permission is in place, but the project and the the provision of maternity services that are needed uh, in a modern uh, fashion for a growing population on the East Coast needs to be acted upon. And assurances, legal and otherwise, has been afforded to all and sundry now to say clinically appropriate care uh, is the full range of services that can be provided in maternity hospitals. That the, the clauses within this agreement gives the power to the minister to direct the to, do, to direct directors to ensure that all maternity, gynecological, obstetrics and other neonatal services that are lawfully available shall be available in the new maternity hospital for the next 300 years. Ten generations of women will now avail of the specialties that should be available today and will be available into the future. And 52 consultants and all the various midwives throughout the country, plus the legal experts associated with them, have confirmed that this is the case. And there comes a time when you have to accept the reality of the situation and get on and build a hospital and make provision for those services to be available to those that we represent. And I feel there is absolute definitive legal certainty available to us to go and do that. And that's what you have to do. And, you know, it mightn't meet with your first choice or your your aspirations, as I've said, but you have to be practicable. You have to see where you're at. You have to see a way through it and provide those facilities. And this is the way and means in which it will be done. And I support that uh, wholeheartedly. So Nasa Horgan and Patrick Costello have received six months suspensions. They will be readmitted after that. But I imagine in the meantime, the Fianna Fáil, your own party, Fine Gael, the Green Party, will be making sure everyone's on their best behaviour to make sure um, the government isn't further jeopardised. Of course, yeah. Look, um, you know, it, it doesn't make it easy. It does put pressure on the government. It does leave it in a precarious situation when it only has a, a majority of one. But that shouldn't deflect from its ability to govern. Um, it, it would be much easier were there a larger majority. But many good governments have had very tight majorities, have been in the minority. And, you know, government is the place where one needs to be. Uh, you have a duty and a responsibility to govern, implement your programme for government. And no, we shouldn't be detracted from that. And I don't expect that we will. That's uh, Fianna Fáil TD Barry Cowan. Uh, he was speaking with uh, Midlands 103's Ellen Butler um, all about the uh, fallout from the National uh, Maternity Hospital vote yesterday. Um, just a quick, uh, some of your reactions on the uh, WhatsApp there. Uh, don't the religious orders owe us enough for the reparations payable due to the Magdalene laundries and the mother and baby homes? Why don't they just take the land? 
and that has been asked a good few times as well. Somebody commenting on uh, a Freudian slip by Pippa Haggart saying uh, she said that the new hospital would be wholly circular, but I think that wholly is spelt with a W rather than H-O-L-Y, but they are well spotted. But uh, she d- uh, they do make the point as well that... Um, Green Party are going against Green Policy, which believes that the hospital should be state-owned and should be on state-owned property. And um, why are all the national hospitals being built in Dublin when the Midlands is more central? Well, I suppose it needs to be near the um, it needs to be near the um, the main centre of population as well, near Dublin. But uh, certainly, uh, it is difficult to get to some of these uh, hospitals. Uh, at times, uh, and certainly St. Vincent's would be a difficult trip from anybody in the Midlands, no doubt about it. Um, someone making a comment, it sounds like the Green Party are a dictatorship. Do what I say or you're gone. But I, I don't think they had a choice in the matter there. They have to have party unity. And as we were talking about there, they do have some very dif- difficult decisions to make around carbon emissions in the coming months and years. And they need to be united as a party. So if they, they don't toe the party line, there has to be some element of sanctions. And I think that has been made fairly loudly in the papers today as well at that point. Now, the second golf major of the year, uh, k- uh, tease off, I was going to say kicks off, tease off just after one o'clock today, Irish time. And lots of Irish in action as well. We're going to speak now to Donna McArdle, former Tullamore Golf uh, Club pro, and Shane Lowry's former coach as well. Good morning, Donna. Uh, Donna, how are you doing? Good morning, Ed. How are you doing? Good to talk to you. There's always a great bit of excitement before a golf major, isn't there? <laughs> it is. It really is. Um, we're really spoiled um, with, with sport in general, but, you know, the majors create their own interest and you know you get all the big names there and they all turn up apart from obviously Mickelson Mickelson yeah that's uh, right who's away and that's for another day's talk maybe but um, yeah it's great they're all there we have a good Irish contingent there um, obviously with Rory Porrig Seamus Power and Shane so let's you know, talk about Shane Lowry first uh, how do you think he's fixed because uh, he's taken a little break a uh, three week break they're saying in the papers this morning just to refresh but before that he did he had a good run in the Masters and a good run in the uh, RBC Heritage yeah no he, he's been really really playing well and just knocking on the door and super consistent you know got himself back up into uh, the mid-twenties of the world golf rankings and played a really, really solid block after Christmas. Uh, I think the three weeks off was, from what I've heard, was predominantly there was a lot of hard work done, but without all the travelling that would be involved. Because, you know, they can't travel 52 weeks of the year to just burn out. So we get a little bit frustrated when we don't see him on television for a couple of weeks because obviously we're all rooting for him. But I know that his time off would be very constructive and I know that he has worked hard. Um, I heard him interviewed either last night or this morning and he knows the challenges of Southern Hills. It's a very, very difficult golf course that has been redesigned. Uh, it's 400 yards longer than it was when they last played it. And, it's also uh, very windy as well. Yeah, it's blowing a gale over there, and that it kind of might fall a little bit into Shane's hands because he's a fantastic shaper of the ball. You know, his ability to move the ball both directions, right to left, left to right. Uh, I think sometimes when he has to work a little bit harder on the golf course, he plays that little bit better. And, you know, obviously coming from his amateur days in Ireland when he played a lot of links golf and when he, you know, you learn to hit shots and... Um, yeah, he sounds like he's in good shape. I, I'd really, really, uh, you know, would like to see him a kind of 
put this one to bed. It would be fantastic. He sounds very positive, very comfortable. He has no doubts about the conditions, the how treacherous the golf course is. Um, but he does sound confident. Yeah, I hope he does well, obviously. But he sounds like he's in a good place. He doesn't seem to have any any huge worries going into the tournament. And the USPGA has been kind to Irish golfers. Didn't Harrington win there, and McElroy won there as well. Yeah, yeah, we've had a we've had a good run for again, probably boxing above our weight or whatever. But yeah, we 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 have. You know, again, I'm a sports fan, so in all sports, we've always, you know, we've always done very well. For such a small nation, we have a phenomenal sports background. And, you know, McElroy is now, you know, one of the older guys. That's right. You know, uh, which is mad to think. And I was looking at Woods being interviewed last night, and um, the interviewer reminded him that it was 25 years since he won his first major. Oh and God. Woods, he was in great form. He just literally laughed and held his head, <laughs> uh, you know, that he couldn't get over it or whatever. But yeah, there's a changing of the guard and there's a lot of good young players coming in who are very consistent week in, week out. Um, Who's your pick at you the know, moment the uh, looking at the, the lineup uh, for the weekend? Who should we look out for if it isn't an Irish victor? Well, Scotty Scheffler has been pound for pound, you know, the most consistent yeah. player over the last probably six months. And he is, his form is always good. He drives the ball fantastically. Um, I think John Ram, he, he drives the ball great. I don't think his short game would be good enough. I, I, I fancy Cam Smith, young Cameron Smith, the, oh, yeah. the Australian, yeah. has since the Masters last year has been knocking at the door. He, he's due a win, and he's due a big win. Uh, he's let a couple of them slip or whatever, but I think he's very young, and he's learning and learning. I think he would be one to watch. There's Obviously, there's there's a fantastic three ball with Tiger Rory. And, and Jordan Spieth. Spieth, yeah. Oh, like, <laughs> I think that they were saying last night that they're predicting the highest ever television audience for one feature group. And it's very early so, on. Know, They're going out just after two o'clock, so it's early yeah, enough in the day, yeah, isn't that, it? Yeah. That's gonna be that's gonna be special. Um you, you know, can Woods win? Who knows? You know, he, he he didn't play a practice ground. He's trying to conserve energy. But you know, he's battling on and he he's not there to make up the numbers. Whether it can go through four rounds. Four rounds on that golf course is a big yeah, ass. Absolutely. And keep it going for four rounds. I yeah, Morikawa or Cam Smith, I think, are two guys that um, you would have to give consideration to. And you have to give consideration to Shane. You have to give the whole Absolutely. man a chance, I think. Absolutely. You know, OK, McElroy showed a little bit of form in the Masters in the last round. And he was, you know, he would have taken a lot of confidence from that. Uh, I think Shane would be more hitting the ground running. He's not looking for something. He's trying to continue on the form that he was on. Uh, it has the makings of a great, great weekend. Absolutely. It's a really, really tough golf course, and when the wind blows, um, the guys who the guys will be found out. You probably on Sunday evening see the same names on top of the leaderboard as we always do because it filters out over four days. But you know, it should be a great tournament. Great stuff, Donna. Thanks a million for taking our call this morning. Great to talk to you. Not at all. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Aidan. That's Donna McCardle, former Tullamore Golf uh, Club Pro and also Shane Lowry's former coach, uh, chatting to us about the USPGA. Uh, it uh, tees off today from about 1pm and that uh, uh, Shane Lowry out around uh, three minutes past seven this evening.
Now, uh, every day, of course, in the newspapers and uh, in the media, we're always hearing about people being encouraged to cycle more, to get out, uh, get plenty of exercise as well. So uh, Peter Dunn is in, from Midlands 103 Breakfast, has now headed to Port Leash and he's meeting some of the students from Port Leash College who have been encouraged to cycle around the town to encourage younger children to cycle to school, especially girls, to create awareness of safe, safe cycling. Peter, can you hear me OK? You can? I can indeed, Aidan. It's all about pedal power today. Pedal power. Like a lovely, bright Port Leash. It's, uh, it's a fantastic day here. Lovely cycling conditions. And students from Port Leash College are going to take the town to encourage young people to cycle to school and create awareness around safe cycling. So joining me here is teacher Adele Wilson from Port Leash College. Adele, whose idea was this? Um, was that actually Sarah Rowan's idea here um, to, to have National Bike Week here in Port Leash College? And it's in conjunction with Leash County Council. Excellent. And uh, tell us a bit about the benefits of cycling. Well, we're trying to encourage students here in Port Leash College to cycle to school. Um, we're doing it in partnership with the green schools as well. So to try and encourage students to use the bike lanes in Port Leash College. Brilliant stuff. And what are the conditions like around Port Leash for cycling? Ah, uh, sure, they're not too bad now. We have loads of cycle lanes here ready to go. There's no pothole, they don't think, make is there? No potholes, so we've all leaned from all the way around the town into the Portage College. Absolutely fantastic. And speaking of Mick, I'm joined here by Garda Mick O'Connell as well. Uh, Mick, what's the biggest problem cyclists face on the road? I suppose uh, the modern times, excess traffic down the roads, heavy lorries and stuff like that. You know, so safety is paramount when it comes to cycling on the roads. As a driver, how can you be more aware of cyclists on the road? Well, I suppose you just need to be aware that they're there and be aware of the space is required to let cyclists uh, when you're passing a cyclist and also for cyclists they have to be aware of drivers as well because it can be frustrating for some drivers as well to see four or five bikes in a row cycling abreast. Is that legal? Well the, the legal is cycling two abreast you know and I suppose fluorescent jackets hats lights stuff like that and cyclists are going along journeys but always encourage them to have a mobile phone and the proper equipment for changing punctures and bikes and stuff like that. The nice breeze here to cool down all the cyclists before they get warm. And uh, I want to talk as well over here to Keith McLaren. He's the assistant principal of Port Leash College. Keith, you cycled a little bit this morning? Oh, just a little bit. Just uh, just to encourage everyone, I said, well, I got a bike um, from a bike to work scheme. And I said, sure, listen, might as well cycle to work this morning. Why not? For the day that's in it. Tell everybody how far you travelled this morning. Uh, it was only 60k, so it was... Is that nice. all? Yeah, that's all. No, it was, it was, you know, it's nice, nice, relaxing, lovely morning for cycling. Weather was beautiful. Absolutely. Very little traffic on the road. I couldn't, I couldn't ask for a better day for it. Brilliant stuff. And can you tell me more? You've got uh, facilities here for bikes as well. I see the, the bike racks over here. Yeah. Are they new? Yeah, they are actually. We installed them there last Easter and we've seen the demand of so many students cycling to work, especially since COVID. And we had a smaller bike rack over there, the other side of the school. And because of demand, we, um, we trebled it in size and it's been fantastic. We see students cycling every day to and from school. And um, to be honest, we probably need to bigger, build a bigger one now, the way it's going. And you mentioned bike to work as well. Bike to work is a great scheme. How do you find it? Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Like it's, um, it really encourages me. To, like I got a lovely bike um, through the scheme, which um, we employ a leash off the ETB and um, got it in there and told them more there to cycle the shop there and um, got a lovely bike and uh, really encouraged me to cycle. What advice would you give to anybody on the wet days? Because sometimes I look out and it may be only drizzling and I go, uh, 
get dressed up. Um, but like, I suppose the thing about Ireland is you have showers and they come and go. And like when the showers clear, it's lovely cycling. Um, but yeah, dress up, wear the wear the wet uh, wet proof clothes, and um, get out there and get get cycling. Absolutely brilliant. We're joined as well by one of the students here, Richard. Richard, do you normally cycle? Yeah, I cycle every day to school. Uh, the, if if the weather's great, I go. Why not? It's not only a good way of getting to school, it's also fitness, you know? Yeah. And do you feel it gives you that kind of uh, bit of independence as well? Yeah, it gives you independence. Uh, every time I go to school, it's that it tells me that I'm ready for the future, that I can make it myself, you know, I can get through it myself. Fantastic. And you're one of the leaders of this initiative here today. What made you want to get involved? Uh, I like making the, the, the earth green, you know. Uh, cleaning the earth, the, um, the global warming and all, it's... Um... Yeah, I mean, it's one of the things um, I was thinking of as well, where petrol prices are on the rise, the cost of living on the rise. You know, mammies and daddies want to think about the price of petrol. So, uh, you know, cycling is it's a health benefit. It's uh, the environment as well. And uh, it's just it's a fantastic initiative for anybody. So what would you say to anybody, any of the students out there listening that are thinking, mm, I might get a bike? What would you say? Get a bike. It's it's worth the hassle. Uh, it may it may be hard at the start, but once you start cycling and you get to school, it's an accomplishment. You know that you've made it. You know that you can go through the whole day. And then whenever you go home after a school day, yeah, it's gonna be hard. But once you get home, you're gonna be, you're you're gonna feel that feeling of accomplishment whenever you get home. Absolutely brilliant, Richard. Thank you so much. So I tell you what, guys, I think it's time to get this party started. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna count down from three, two, one, and we're gonna launch this cycle. Okay. So does everybody, everybody, hear me? We're gonna count down from three, and then you're gonna get on your bikes and get out of here. You ready? Three. Two, one, go! There you go, Aiden. Peter, so, I, I must say... You can say, hear the sirens in the background. Absolutely. They're getting a Garda escort around Port Leash. And if you see them, if you're in around Port Leash, give them a beep, give them a wave, give them a bit of encouragement. A fantastic initiative. We need to see more people doing this. Peter, uh, give those uh, children a great cheer and give that teacher a medal for cycling 60k to work today. <laughs> I would Aiden only he's gone already he's, <laughs> he's taken he's off he's taken off the group I think he thinks it's a race oh, and he's wow. gone wow 60 <laughs> kilometres to work I feel embarrassed I won't tell people how far I drove to the studios uh, in Tullamore and, this morning okay and the thing is Aiden, he has to cycle home as well oh dear oh dear <laughs> another okay. 60k I'm getting so weak listen go. to that thank you Peter thanks for that <laughs> thank you Aiden. take care <laughs> that's our breakfast presenter Peter Dunn he was live in Port Leash at Port Leash College and their students are cycling around town to encourage people to get on, literally get on your bike uh, great initiative and well done uh, so thanks for that uh, what time are we now it's uh, 10.58 uh, we're heading towards news at 11 o'clock uh, plenty more to come on Midlands Today Keepers we have another hour of the programme coming up between 11 and 12 now, welcome back to the programme. It's Aidan Barry sitting in for Will Faulkner today and tomorrow. Will is back from next Monday. Uh, if you want to contact the programme, it's uh, 083 30 10 103. That'll get us on text or WhatsApp. Now, um, th- it was announced uh, earlier today that social welfare recipients can rent a room in their house up to a value of €14,000 a year without affecting their payments under a new government measures aimed at easing the accommodation crisis. 
We're going to talk to uh, Clement Hearn now, the owner of Clement Hearn Real Estate in Port Leash, about the scheme. Uh, good morning, Clement. Uh, good morning. Thanks very much for coming on. Uh, I suppose, given the current situation and the crisis at the moment, particularly with the arrival of Ukrainian refugees in Ireland, this is a good idea, is it, Clement? I don't think. I think it's another sticky plaster on a on a massive problem uh, that they're not taking a long-term view on. Um, every six months they come up with some other uh, cock-and-bull notion uh, that they think is going to fix a problem. It's not going to fix a problem. It's going to create another problem. Um, house sharing is something we'll say as an agent we wouldn't even look or even even consider facilitating here because it's it's a recipe for a disaster is what it is and uh, the consistent uh, change of the rules on housing and rental is driving landlords out of the market and this is not going to work it's not going to solve anything we couldn't even even start to try to entertain to do anything with uh, a rule like that because it's practically impossible to administer and practically impossible to police and it's just a wide open uh, door for social welfare fraud and it's it's <laughs> typical of, of what, what has happened uh, with the government interfering in a, in a market the right. market is governed by supply and demand and the RPZ has failed ultimately and pathetically failed and has drove landlords out of the rental market and into the sales market. Our rental stock is going down by almost 60% in the last two years and the reason for that is that hard-working uh, individuals uh, with jobs, some of them accidental landlords that didn't really want to be landlords when the free money was being fired out in 2006, they became landlords almost by accident. And then as soon as they got quids in and could sell their properties, they couldn't wait to exit the market. We also have a, I have a landlord I spoke this morning with 14 properties, can't not wait to get out. As quick as his notices uh, will expire, out. He is getting out. And the reason they're getting out is because the government are taxing hard-working people and now they're talking about rewarding people for a, for, for a policy or an idea that is doomed to failure. It's a disaster waiting to happen. I don't know, you know, I, I think that a policy such as this has been drafted by somebody who's absolutely no idea what it's like to be at the coalface. I have, I'm 18 years in this business and I've never seen anything like the the crisis that we're in at the moment for the lack of rental properties. We have 12 people on waiting lists that we're waiting to get out of our houses and as soon as anything comes available, we're giving them first refusal. It's, it's you know, it's this is not a solution. A room to share and somebody who's already claiming social welfare. Think about it. How could that possibly work? What they need to do is build to rent allow landlords make a few bob stay in the market to buy more i i spoke to a good man this morning and he said i would just as i would build up equity i go again i'd add another house i'd add another house until i build up a nice base of properties but because of the tax regime he said i can't do it because of the rps the the rtb rules uh changing all the time he can't do it because he's paying for everything. And then if he makes a bit of profit, the government will want to take 52% of that from him. You know, so 
But I, I suppose the, the, the difficulty, Clement, is that I suppose the uh, the government are looking at the situation now. You have all these refugees now expected that between 31 and 33,000 people uh, will, will be looking for accommodation or will have sought accommodation by the end of June. That that the government just have to do something to look after this. This is an emergency situation that, uh, like you talk about people maybe seeking out houses or looking to build houses or buy it. But, I mean, the time is against us at the moment. We have an emergency going on and this is an emergency, uh, you know, an emergency solution to this immediate problem. Yeah, it's an immediate problem, but it's a sticky plaster and it's not going to work. The reason it's not going to work is because it's wide open to fraud and it's what they need to do is look at the tax rules and, and allow landlords to stay in the market and not get taxed so heavily that they, they just can't afford to stay in the rental market. That's the problem. The other, pro- the other difficulty is, we'll say, the social housing. They don't have enough stock and they, they're not building enough stock and the cost of building is going through the roof. And we, we had a crisis before about six years ago in Ireland where the hotels were full of Irish people waiting to get accommodation. Now they tried accommodation homes and they tried a lot of different things. They've they, they've alleviated that problem somewhat. But sticking to now, if you if you just took a case and said, okay, well, um, I've got a couple of empty houses, uh, but I can't dream of renting them out again. I just can't rent them out because the return is not there. The reward is not there. All I'd be facing with is, is a tax bill. And that's what I'm hearing from my landlords. We're working for a couple of hundred couple of hundred properties and the landlords all have the same difficulty. If if they're making money they're getting taxed and if they're spending money on their on their houses they're losing money. So it's 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 been stacked against Mr Man in the middle, you know, all the time. The guy that wants to go out and work uh, you know, uh, get up at six o'clock in the morning and go and do a day's work and try and invest a few bob in property. He's he's getting penalised. How many so properties would that bring in to the market? Uh, sorry, Clement. How many properties would that bring into the market if the government were to uh, to do something uh, in terms of landlords and to 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 legislate favourably for them? What kind of numbers in terms of uh, rental properties would become available? You know, in a relatively short space in time over the next three four months. Over the next three four months, um, you'd only you would only get uh, would say in a town the size of Port Leash with twenty thousand people you might get 40 or 50 uh, houses because there's nothing empty at the minute. But the RPZ is the biggest problem. You know, that there's people in houses and the rents are too low. Landlords, be, be, by being nice to tenants, have ended up devaluing their own properties and um, minimising their own returns. So the RP, RPZ is the first thing that's ultimately failed. Okay. And when you say oh. that it's open to fraud, this new scheme, eh, what do you mean by that? What I, what I mean by that is, would say that uh, Joe Bloggs down the road says, oh God, I, I have a spare room in my house or I have a spare space in my house and okay, I could take in uh, a, refu- uh, some, a refugee or somebody from Ukraine and come into my house. Or sure, don't I have um, a friend of mine up the road there and his young fellas on, uh, on Job Seekers, sure he could rent it from me and stay where he is. Sure, they'd, 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 make it, they'd make it up to beat the band. You could see it coming. And and if there was a thing that uh, he was going to take in, and take in, we say Ukrainian. Have they got translators? Have they people to to, to handle these people properly? You know that this is just 
a crazy solution. You're just putting a roof over there. You're putting them into a house. You don't know what the host is. Have they have they any skills? Are they able to understand Ukrainian? Are they able to help them out? Are they going to find them schools? Are they going to find them jobs? They've absolutely no qualifications of any description to take in people. That's, uh, you know, these people are come from a traumatized situation. You don't want to put them into a worse situation. But it is, and it is also wide open to fraud because it's not just for Ukrainians. It's rent rooms to anybody. Okay, okay. Listen, Clement, thank you for your time this morning. You make your case uh, very strongly indeed, and I appreciate your time taking, talking to us this morning. Okay, thank All you. Right. Uh, we're speaking there to Clement Hearn. He's owner of Clement Hearn Real Estate uh, in Port Leash. And he's saying that there are a large number of landlords leaving the market and that this announcement today is the wrong solution. It's a sticky tape. It could leave itself open to fraud. Uh, it's not going to solve the situation. And Ukrainian families who uh, come there may need further help that uh, people may not be able to provide. Uh, what do you think? 083 30 10 103. Text or WhatsApp. Now, still to come before uh, 12 o'clock today, uh, we have our headaches and heartache slot from 11.30. We'll be speaking to Rory and to Margaret and hopefully trying to give some ideas and some uh, response to some of your queries that you've sent in. You can send in more as well to 0833010103. But before that, we'll be hearing from uh, a man from just outside that uh, who uh, was involved. We played a little clip at the beginning of the programme, Marilyn Monroe singing Happy Birthday to uh, JF Gizigo today. We'll be hearing about the dress and it's reappeared recently at the Met Gala. That's all to come before 12. Now, welcome back to the programme. Uh, it is 60 years to the day, um, the 60th anniversary of the night that Marilyn Monroe shimmied onto the stage in her famous skin and beads gown to sing a very sultry happy birthday to Mr. President at the time, JFK. Uh, the gown recently appeared in public again at the Met Gala, this time worn by Kim Kardashian. We're going to talk to the man who arranged it all, uh, a man from Athlone, from Kiltoom. Good morning, uh, Martin Nolan. I believe we're speaking to the United States this morning. In good morning, and in fact, you're talking to me in New York City, so it's um, ironic that I'm here actually 60 years to the day. Absolutely. Well, it's great to talk to you. Uh, you are the executive director at Julian's Auctions. Uh, how does a man from Kiltoom end up in that position, Martin? <laughs> That's a very good question from Kiltoom there in the country and uh, not something that was on my uh, my goals uh, in, in life, but my mother always told me to hitch my wagon to a star. So I guess that's what I did. And here I am uh, working with all the stars in rock and roll, sports stars and, of course, the Hollywood stars. And what did you do before uh, Julian Auctions? What, what was your job? Uh, were you in the States before that? I was indeed. I won a green card in the lottery in 1989. Before that, I spent, uh, spent some time in Ericsson's in Athlone, and then I went on to work with on first Talonfish, which became Chagas. And I was there until 87. I spent a year in Australia, and then I came to New York in 89. I worked at the Hilton Hotel when I got here first, here in New York City. And then I trained to be a stockbroker starting in 1992, and I was there for about 13, 14 years until I joined the auction company in 2005. And in fact, the first auction we did at Julian's Auctions when I came on board was the second estate sale from Marilyn Monroe, which was June uh, 5th of 2005. So 
I came on for six months, Aidan, and um, I guess I'm still here. You're still there. Well, tell us about the story about the dress then. How does the dress, uh, first of all, who owns the dress at the moment? Uh, who has control of it, shall we say? Who has paid the big bucks for it? <laughs> yeah, $4.81 million in 2016, and I was very proud to bring that uh, dress by private jet into Ireland. We had it on display at Newbridge Silverware, Museum of Style Icons, for one week. October 2016, and Aiden, I think we had something like 10,000 people came to see the dress, which is so iconic and has become so even much more famous again now that Kim Kardashian decided to wear it. So the dress was auctioned in November 2016. It was bought by Ripley's, believe it or not, <laughs> and they were celebrating 100 years in existence, and uh, they wanted to buy something Americana, something very iconic. And so they splurged and uh, they bought this particular dress, which is, has so much history. You know, Marilyn Monroe in March of 62, President Kennedy invited her to sing happy birthday to him at the Democratic National Convention, Madison Square Garden, May 19, I just said, 1962. And so she asked John Louie, who was a costume designer, and he was working on the movie that she was working on at that time, uh, Something's Got to Give. She wanted him to create something that, no one else would wear something really different and he he, he delivered and marilyn monroe you know just like kim kardashian today she understands fame she understands how to make herself famous she, she had appreciation for clothing shakespeare said the clothes make it the man but marilyn monroe took it to the next level and said well the clothes are going to make it the woman as well and so she did and she wore that incredible outfit it was the talk of the town 60 years ago, and again, May of this year in New York City, Kim Kardashian made it the talk of the town again. So incredible. How did it come about that Kim Kardashian got the dress? How did you arrange that? <laughs> That's an interesting story because Kim Kardashian is a friend of Julian's, and also she's a client, and she buys from time to time, and sometimes she goes on social media and she tells the world that, she might have bought a Michael Jackson jacket for her daughter for her birthday from Julian's auctions, or she bought something from Janet Jackson's auction last year. She loved Janet Jackson. And Chris Jenner, her mom, is also a client and buys from us and a friend. And uh, so Kim reached out to us in January. Now, everyone thinks this was three weeks before May 2nd when the Met Gala was taking place. And they team up the Met Gala, which... If your audience is not familiar, it's like the biggest, one of the biggest social events on the calendar here in New York City each year. And all the stars turn out. It's a big fundraiser for the Metropolitan Museum here on 82nd and 5th Avenue, New York City, backing onto Center Park. Incredible institution. And so all the celebrities want to be there and make a statement, as you will, a fashion statement. And it was, um, this year was, you know, gilded glamour and it was American fashion in the age of gilded glamour. And so Kim called us and asked us if we would make an introduction to the current owner of the dress, which, uh, you know, and I've said this numerous times, is that ordinarily it would be no, or it would be we'd ask and we'd ask politely and maybe that would be the end of the case. But Kim, you know, when she asked for something, she'd ask again. She would come back again. But we did feel that um, we would certainly make the introduction, of course, as we would. But also we did a recommendation because 
if anybody is going to wear the dress and make it more famous than it actually is now, and if anyone's going to respect it with the respect that it needs, given it's a garment that was made 60 years ago, um, it would be Kim Kardashian because she has enormous respect for fashion in general. And so we made the, uh, the introduction and then the journey began for Kim so that she could actually fit in the dress on May 2nd. And she started an exercise and diet regimen right there and then because when she sets her mind to something, she achieves it. And one of the things she did was she asked Ripley's for if they could give her the exact measurements of the dress so that um, Kim could, that would be her goal. To, if she could fit into that replica dress, then she knew she could fit into the original dress, which is what she wanted to do. And so three weeks before the Met Gala, she tried on that particular dress and it fit her perfectly. And so she thought, okay, we're good. She went for the fitting to, with Ripley's. They actually brought the dress to her with their uh, fashion curator from Orlando, Florida to her home in Los Angeles. And the dress didn't fit. Very barely did not fit, simply because the fabric was more stretchy on the replica one than the original one, understandably so. Mm-hmm. And so came out three weeks then to continue her program of diet and exercise, and she wore a sauna suit, so basically walking around all the time just sweating and just losing, getting rid of water in the body and just thinning and toning so she could wear the dress. And she went to Orlando, I think, on April 23rd, tried on the dress, it fitted perfectly. And then it comes to the agreement with yes Ripley i'm interested to hear this how did she mind team. how did she mind it martin then i mean what were what were the rules around this very expensive dress a lot of rules first of all there was a significant amount of money in an escrow account obviously there was also a huge amount of money insurance coverage um there was rules like no tan and no um perfumes no deodorants nothing that could you know, come in contact with the, the garment that might disintegrate it in years to come. And Kim was really, really very uh, disciplined about that. She also agreed, and so when you go to the Met Gala, it's, you're outside on the red carpet, and then you walk up probably 40 steps, well, 30 steps, let's say, very wide steps. And that's sort of the show for the, for the world media and that you and I talk about. Once they go through the doors of the Metropolitan Museum, they, you know, it's fun times, there's no social media, there's no photography, it's the party. And so they can be themselves. So Kim actually agreed with the uh, Anna Wintour from Vogue and the Met Gala people. They agreed that they would allow Kim to change in a sort of a tented area downstairs, outside, uh, on the red carpet, before the red carpet. So she just put on the dress, walked the red carpet up the steps, and at the top of the steps, she actually changed again into a different Marilyn dress and she continued on the night. So really, she was in the dress probably, I would say, 10 minutes at, at, at most. So again, it was her moment and uh, she seized that opportunity and we are still talking about it. Oh, absolutely, we are. indeed. We are indeed. I was going to say she looked a million dollars, but it was much more than that, Martin, wasn't it? But it certainly grabbed the headlines all over the world. I mean, it was a huge thing. And her photo and her uh, photograph was in the uh, papers of every media outlet, I'd say, in the world. But uh, has there been uh, much reaction since? uh, Or have you had feedback from the Kardashians to the Julian auction since? 
Um, uh, you know, the Kardashians are wonderful people to deal with. They are real people, and they treat me and anybody that comes into contact with them as real people. And they have a great interest in people. And apart from just the, uh, the thank you, which would be expected, after the, the Met Gala, that was it. And Kim has already moved on to the next project, but the media haven't let go. People are still talking about it. I get still asked about it. And I knew that, Aiden, that, you know, obviously when Kim made the call, I thought, genius. That is brilliant. That's why Kim Kardashian is who she is, because she was doing something that no one else would dare to do. And, um, you know, it's just incredible that she pulled it off and she, she got it done. And um, it's made her more famous. It's made the dress more famous. It's made the dress more valuable. I think it has doubled in value. It's introduced Marilyn Monroe to one or two generations since Marilyn passed away 60 years ago this August coming. And so the dress, I think, would sell for probably 10 million right now because it's such a famous dress. Again, with the controversy slash with Kim Kardashian work wearing it. Well, listen, it's a great story, and I say it was quite the headlines at the time, just a few weeks back at the Met Gala. It's great to talk to you about it, Martin, and uh, best wishes. Have you many connections still in Athlone at the moment? Uh, any family still here? Oh, sure, you wouldn't want to go too far. There'll be some connection of mine anywhere <laughs> there in Athlone or Kiltoum or Curraboy or out in Glasson, you name it, uh, the Northern Tentacles go a long way, so... Yeah, of course, my mother is there and probably listening to this interview right now and she'll be <laughs> probably giving out to me after it's <laughs> over. But anyway, yes. And I get home fairly often. I'm hoping to be home um, with Common. They're playing um, Galway next weekend. So hopefully I could make it home for that. The Connacht final, that would be great. Schedule. I'm actually here in New York, Aiden, because we have a huge auction this weekend, Music Icons. It's a three-day auction event, so I think this is going to be one that we'll be setting some new world records as, as well. Oh, wow. That's wow. That, that's fantastic. Martin, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us this morning. I appreciate it's very early in New York City. Thanks for taking the call. My pleasure, Aidan. Have a great day, and thanks again. That's uh, Martin Nolan, I say, formerly from Kiltoum, just outside Athlone. He's executive director at Julian Auctions, and he was telling you all about that very famous, as Marilyn Monroe herself called it, skin and beads gown. Uh, worn by Kim Kardashian at the Met Gala this year that uh, literally uh, took world attention and brought us right back to 1962 again. Amazingly as well to think Marilyn Monroe died. He mentioned it there. She died in August, three months after the event. And then JFK died a year and a half later in November 63 as well. Both of them were, uh, were dead within a year and a half of the, of the 62 birthday celebrations. Welcome back to the programme and uh, it's time for our headaches and heartaches uh, section. I'm joined in studio, first of all, by Roy Hafford, uh, who's a psychotherapist and author living in Four in Westmeath. Uh, he's joined us in studio. Good morning. Uh, sorry, Rory. It's, uh, morning. it's Rory. I was calling you Roy there for a second. <laughs> I apologise. Rory. I've been called worse. Called uh, worse. Anyway, it's good to have you in this morning. How are you keeping you good? Very good. Very good. And I should be joined as well on Zoom by Margaret Bassett. Good morning, Margaret. Good morning, Aidan, and, and you are joined on Zoom by Margaret Bassett. <laughs> I am indeed. It's lovely to talk to you again, Margaret. We know ourselves from our previous life, don't we? That's right, but we won't say much on the radio. We won't. <laughs> we won't go into that. But it's lovely. It's lovely to talk to you again this morning. It's great to catch up again. I'm joking. I'm joking, Aidan. I'm joking. No bother. So uh, we might go to some of the listeners' uh, queries here. We'll start with the first one here. It's uh, Jenny, and Jenny's having a really hard time motivating herself in work. She feels trained. 
uh, she's sorry, she feels tired, fed up and she doesn't know what's wrong. There's nothing major happening in her life so she can't figure out why she's feeling this way. Um, do you want to start with it, uh, Rory? Yeah, we'll give it a go. She, but she, Jenny's not giving us an awful lot to go on. That's, mm. that, that's the first thing. But provided that it's not physiological in cause, so there's not, there's not a, a pathology lurking there somewhere, we'll assume that it's, that it's an emotional thing with her. Okay, And, that, and, that, and that, that's the thing that's draining her. The, there's two things. There's two obvious answers to, to something like this. One is get a new job. That's the first thing. That would, you'd imagine that would sort the problem out. But it's not that simple because she, she could just be transporting the problems that she has in this one to a new one. So she needs to sort them out first. And the other thing is, and this is from a very practical point of view, focus on the benefits rather than the, the, you know, the, the problems inherent in, in, in the job itself. Because every job, as, as we all know, comes with problems that have to be, that have to be surmounted. But... I think based on on her description and her outline, I think it runs a little bit deeper. And, and I, I just set it up very briefly for you. Okay. My, my, my stock and trade basically is existential psychotherapy, uh, which Margaret would know is, is, is a, it's, it's a philosophical approach brought into therapy. And I find that it works amazingly well with ordinary, normal folk who sit in front of you because they're not broken and they're not sick. They're mostly lost. Mm. So philosophy is, is, is a good way to actually get under the problems there. So if we, if we take a little leap and assume that Jenny's problem is existential, philosophical, she's a little bit lost because she hasn't said that there's anything else, it goes to a, a, a very deep thing called uniqueness. So we are all unique and what we do has to suit us. Like, for instance, you're sitting behind a microphone. And doing very well. Now, how did you find yourself there? You were drawn to it. You were pulled into it. Uh, in this case, Jenny may be in the wrong place. And it, it just might not suit her uniqueness as a human being. So it might uh, help her if she looked exactly at what her skills, her talents, and m- more, more importantly, what she likes doing. And are those boxes ticked in this job? Okay, Margaret, have you come across this issue before? Uh, what advice would you have yeah, for Jenny? Yeah, it's like, you know, Rory has said most of it. And just to add, Aidan, there's so much we don't know about Jenny. But I have this thing about hormones in men as well as women, too. And I did research on it uh, while, while studying. So I would definitely rule out anything physically initially, okay. in, uh, initially. There is so much we don't know. But just to add to what Rory has said, maybe see this as an opportunity. Tired and fed up. And don't underestimate the last two years we are all after enduring and the effects on our work life with COVID and stuff like that. So all all that Rory has said, and that's my little take on it, but I, I, I can't emphasize enough um. If I was Jenny, I'd have an MOT. I'd go and have a physical because even something as simple and as complicated as an underactive thyroid could make you feel tired and lethargic. And especially if nothing major is happening, if there's nothing else going on. And with regards COVID, you know, our work lives did change. 
And don't underestimate, I would say to Jenny, the effects that has had on her as well. So this, this is an opportunity for Jenny to investigate. To reevaluate. Investigate herself. It would be interesting to know sorry Margaret, it would be interesting to know how long she has been in the job. She doesn't yes. say uh, that would be a strong indicator if, if she's a short time maybe it's not the job for her. If she's a long yeah. time in the job maybe she just needs to work through some issues in the job would you say? Yeah, yeah, yeah and um, y- you know life gets tedious life, uh, our, jobs, our jobs might become uh, not challenging anymore Um you know, maybe it's, it's her instinct, her gut telling her, you know, it's time to look at perhaps other avenues. So see it as an opportunity every which way, I would say to Jenny, to investigate, investigate herself, her current situation and possible future changes that may need to, to uh, be put in place. Okay, we'll move on. Um, We have another listener here. This is Olivia in the Midlands. She said that she found her husband is texting another woman. He let her borrow his phone the other day and a WhatsApp came in from a woman she didn't know. And the text on it was very flirty. Uh, She didn't open the message completely. She hadn't uh, said and she hasn't said anything about it because she doesn't know how to even start the conversation. Have you any advice? Margaret might start with you this time. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I read this and, you know, it, 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 once again, there is so much we need to know. Um, was it a joke? Um, but to me, what it comes down to is what's acceptable in the relationship and different strokes for different folks. And by that, I mean, some women and some men mightn't have a problem with their partner receiving text and it could be a a joke and a harmless kind of thing like you'd wonder why would he give her the phone if he was trying to hide Mm. anything but I think it comes down to trust in the relationship what is acceptable with each partner within the relationship and what is not and why the difficulty communicating What, what what's the problem with asking him well, who's this from? What, 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 what is this about? And, and to me, it, it, our, our, our partners, our relationships are very individual and very different. And to, it could be as simple as a joke. But I'm wondering with Olivia writing in, what is the problem with communicating there? Why is there a reluctance? Why is there a fear to bring up the subject? Does she suspect something else? Like It's like everything, Aidan, with these uh, problems. There is so much we need to know. Yeah, we, we need to fill in a few blanks there as well. Yeah. Rory, what did you yeah. make of it? It was significant that he was happy to hand her the phone. Yeah, yes. but again, and I'd have to, I'd have to agree with, with, with Margaret on this. There's so many things that we don't know. And as psychotherapists, like you need to dig, 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 get everything laid bare and then come up with it. So, so g- given, given the constraints of, of the fact that this is a radio show, yeah. we'll go with what we have. The, I think... Uh, Margaret touched on it a, a few times. What's the problem with communicating? I think it could be a fear of the answer. That's mm. the first yeah. thing. Because yeah. it, all she fears is that this, this man who she's walking through life with is not the person that she thought 
he was. And she has defined herself by this relationship. We all do. We all do. Yeah, yeah. every one of us. Yes. So this yes. this is, is a catastrophic end of things if the answer she fears comes back. So she's dodging the issue. But you can only She's do worried. absolutely, She's worried, yeah. worried. But you can only do that for so long, Margaret. You know yourself, and then and then you'll be you'll be ripped asunder psychologically. Now, there's a couple of things with this. I actually love this question. I oh. love it. So I'm going to dive straight into it. Okay, dive away. In in CBT, cognitive behavior therapy, which is a, which is a popular form of psychotherapy, there's a big thing called automatic negative thoughts or ants, as they call them. And that leads on to a thing called rumination, where you go over and over and over a problem in your head, but you're exacerbating the negative aspect as opposed to looking at it in the round. So again, it depends on what this woman's automatic thought process is. Is it automatically negative or is it automatically positive? And I'll give you an example. Uh, if it's negative, she looks at this text and she, she automatically thinks he's having an affair. Now, if you're automatically positive, you could look at the same text and go, he's so friendly that people feel comfortable texting him. Yeah, yeah. With, with flirty things. And we've all come across that in the workplace, mm. you know, stuff that, that in, 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 in the godforsaken politically correct world we're in now, you wouldn't even dream of doing. But in my day, people, people, certainly, did. people certainly did. The other thing is, are there any other pointers to make her jump to the conclusion that he's having an affair? Is there a pattern of behaviour here? And does this add to the pattern? By her text, it doesn't seem to be. Mm. This seems to have just come out of the blue. Yeah. So, so we'll give him the benefit of the doubt on it. The thing, the thing for me is, two years ago, I wrote a book. And this radio station, God bless you and the saints that have brought it into existence, <laughs> did an interview with me. And it proved immensely popular. Now, this is not about me. This is about the people who bought the book and read it. But the book was about affairs, betrayal, cheaters, all that kind of stuff. And it flew off the shelves. So there's a lot of this stuff happening. And consequently, so many people came to me in the clinic with the same problem because they identified with the narrative and the story. So it is absolutely out there. Here's what I would do. Okay. I'd say it to him. But I'd say it to him tactfully. I wouldn't say, you're having an affair. <laughs> I'd, say it to, I'd say it to him, get the name of the person who texted him and, and just ask, who's, you know. Who's so-and-so. Who's so-and-so. Yeah. And you can gauge by his bodily reaction, if nothing else, yeah. if there is something there. Yeah, because right. this will drive her insane if she doesn't. Yeah, it's just, going to, mm. it's just going to keep nagging at her. Yeah. Okay, all right. I yeah, but it does go back, doesn't it, Rory, to the relationship of and course. the trust within the relationship. Of course, yeah, of course. But, but, know, but, but, and but and when, I, when I say, Rory, what's acceptable to people, it, it's ex it might be acceptable to me that my partner can, uh, of course, have female friends and they can joke mm. and it can be flirty. It's about our, our, uh, the, the relationship and the trust within the relationship. Yeah. Trust now, is the big that thing. Has, it, that might, you see, everyone's unique. So there's so much we need to know about this relationship. Mm, has it been challenged in the past? Mm. Yeah. yeah. And, and is, is there that pattern of behavior there? Yeah. But again, it also raises another another thorny issue, which we wouldn't have time to go into here, which is unconditional acceptance or in our world, unconditional positive regard for the other human being. So you give people the benefit of their doubt. But I think yes. this crosses the line, Margaret. 
You know, if if this woman is worried at a test at, at a text that she has found, yeah. that is her reality, which yeah. means it's yeah. real for her. That's right. And, and, and I wouldn't like somebody flirting with my partner on a phone. Mm-hmm. But that's that's me. Mm-hmm. That's me. And yet I trust him implicitly. Mm. Fair enough. You okay. know. OK, OK. Um, you can keep your texts and WhatsApps coming into us, by the way, 083 30 10 103. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with Rory and Margaret after this. Now, welcome back to the programme. We're uh, speaking headaches and heartaches. And I have Rory Hufford uh, here in studio with me. And Margaret Bassett is on Zoom with us this morning. Rory, you've never met Margaret, have you not? I've never met her, but I have a picture of her in my head. Margaret, do you it hear that? Gr- yeah, get a good mental picture of that, Rory. I'm seeing Bo Derek for some reason. I don't know why. Don't, don't torment me. <laughs> I think it's time to move on very quickly here. Onto yeah, another, move on there, <laughs> Move on rapidly. Okay. Again, we don't have a lot of information on this one, but it's uh, Karen in Westmead. She says her daughter and her sister's stepchild have had a falling out and now her sister is not talking to her. The whole thing is such a mess. What can she do? So um, it appears that they're taking, you know, each child's kind of side of mm. the of the story and so on. Rory, what do you make of this one? Well, this is the classic family dynamic. Mm. And it, this is this is uh, this can be very divisive. OK, and particularly in families, uh, if you have a go at somebody, you feel you've licensed to have a real good go because Asher, they know me and they love me. And, you know, I can I can go the extra bit. But it can get very, very messy and and very damaging to the point that relationships are just eviscerated mm. and you never get them back. <sighs> Seen this in the clinic an awful lot. And I give it kind of short shrift because a lot of the time it's driven by old stuff. It's not even about the problem as texted in. It's old relationships, it's old associations, it's stuff that she did when she was a child at at seven and and it's never been forgotten. So all of that will come back up again because in families, we, we, we build a picture of somebody through association. So we look at them and we associate various things with them. So that'll be the first thing. The second thing for me is, is that it's almost inevitably ego driven. It's the ego is damaged. The ego has to be defended. How dare you? And all that, Mm. all that kind of stuff. So that needs to be put out of the way. I have a mad idea by way of a solution. Okay. Organize a sit down in a neutral venue, uh, like a scene from a bad mafia movie. (laughs) So leave all the guns and the knives at the 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 door. door. Yeah. And then sit down and get the evidence. Okay. If you can... Back up. Yeah, board down rather than saying you're horrible or you're terrible. And then you're just dealing with labels and Mm. then you you cease to be a person and you you become the label itself, which is 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 not helpful and will not fix the problem. So the other thing and the final thing for me on this is be solution focused. Because we can all go round and round the houses by pointing fingers, apportioning blame, uh, finding faults. That's, you know, it could be argued the new Irish way. Mm. It doesn't solve anything. It just backs up and bumps up the ego, but the row remains. So come into that meeting with a number of solutions, possible solutions Mm. that you can in a positive way. What about you, Margaret, on family war? You know, when when I read this, when I read this, uh, problem. I, I was reminded of my late mother's saying. She used to say, "Never give your senses to the child. Don't be falling out over children." 
Now, can I just say in this particular problem, it's we, we know very, very little, even less than than other problems with regards to this. Uh, I find it very interesting what Rory said there about it's the old stuff. Mm. And I would have another way of putting it. it it's messy, according, according to Karen, but it's messy because it's your sibling. It's your sister and you love her. And it is the old stuff and it is the ego. And I'm wondering, are there outside influences involved as well? Like parents of the children involved. It's all right for children to have uh, to fall out. They're entitled to do that. It's not great, but they're entitled to do that. But what is wrong with Karen? Even if the sister has decided not to speak to her anymore, going uh, going and communicating to her and asking her a good old fashioned sit down, like Rory said, what's the problem? And then if the sister still refuses to talk to Karen, that might be what what's to be, mm. unfortunately. But it's interesting that the last problem and this problem both have one thing in common, fear of communication. Yes. Why? Yeah. Fear of the outcome, yeah. maybe. Yeah. That's, a, yeah, it's a That's com- my contribution. Yeah, absolutely. Can I fit in one more? Because I'm conscious of only about a minute and a half, two minutes sure. left, Margaret. I'll come to you first on this. Des in Leash retired from work after Christmas, but he's finding <laughs> it very difficult. His wife has given out to him that he's under her feet. He uh, doesn't know what to do with himself to keep busy. He had been looking forward to retirement, but now he's just simply yes. bored. Yes. And and because of our time constraints, I'll be very quick. This um the, the retirement, it can creep up. You look forward to it. You're you're working hard morning, noon and night and you're looking forward to it and it creeps up, up uh, on you and there's no preparation for it. It's like the hamster on the wheel going round and round and round and round and round until the uh, wheel stops and the hamster just falls off. Yeah. No preparation. So it's great in theory. It sounds brilliant. But if there is no preparation, you can get the land of your life too. And it sounds to me as if this particular issue is around a traditional family. And by that, I mean the woman being at home and that's her domain. Mm. And the husband is under under her feet. And he was looking forward to it, but now he finds himself bored. He probably finds himself bored because he never gave himself time to stop and smell the roses. I don't mean to sound judgmental. I really don't. But now he has that time. See it as a newfound freedom. Go and discover his passion in life. True. Occupation is the key. It didn't matter if it was just damp collecting or bird watching of the feather Variety. Right. Very important. Rory, hey. uh, can I get your view? Sorry, Margaret. Yeah, good no, job there. I'll, I'll, okay. I'll, I'll lash through it because Margaret's actually hit, hit most hit, of the, yes. the major points there. A lot of people define themselves by what it is they do. Yeah. I mean, th- think of any 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 party that you go to. The first question is, what do you do? Yeah. And people then do, do an attachment. So when you come to an end of what it is that you do, an end is in your mind. So job gone, they're gone yeah. in the minds of, of, of a lot of people. And a lot of people do go into free fall when it happens. A couple of ideas. Now he has time. Write a book. Get super fit. Study. Volunteer. Be a new way in the world. But most of all, get meaning into your life. Brilliant. Brilliant. Passion. 
passion. passion. Purpose. Purpose. Passion. Excellent. Listen, you guys, it's lovely to talk to you. First, lovely to chat to you today. Margaret, it's lovely to chat to you again as well. Rory, to meet and you as well. And you, Aidan. And you, Rory. Thanks, Margaret. Okay. Thank you. That's our heart, uh, headaches and heartaches section uh, over for today. Thanks to Rory and to Margaret for the contribution today. And thanks to everybody who contacted You can always get in contact. 083 30 10 103. That is our lot today. I'm over time. I'm so sorry to uh, Carl James, who's coming up with the afternoon show. Thanks to Sinead Hubble and all the guys in the new room. I'm back tomorrow from 9 as well. Talk to you then. Today with Bus Aaron. Great news. Fares across the Transport for Ireland network are being reduced, which means travelling on any Bus Aaron operation service is now cheaper than ever. Visit busaaron.ie today.